Our sermon text today is the, the first chapter of Jeremiah. It's in 746 in your pew Bible or turn to it in your own Bible. We're going to read the whole chapter and invite you to follow along as we read. Just a few words of introduction about this passage first and about Jeremiah in general. This is about the call of Jeremiah, how God commissions him for service to his people. Jeremiah lived around the time, maybe about 648 B.C., and he lived past 587 B.C. It's always kind of confusing with B.C. because the numbers are backwards for us. But he lived uh, in Judah, in Jerusalem, and he lived at a time that was particularly important for the ancient world geopolitically, but very important for Israel with um, having to do with its own borders and its own security. There was a real tug of war in the world that time between the two ends of the Fertile Crescent. One end, of, if you remember this from, from your social studies class in junior high, there's something called the Fertile Crescent over there in the Middle East. And on, on this side is the Persian Gulf, and there's these two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, and they, this vast swath of fertile land between them. It's, it's in what's modern-day Iraq now. It, the crescent goes up through the mountains and into the mountains of, of Turkey and Syria, and then it plummets down the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea and into Egypt. And so it's kind of like shaped like this. And that fertile crescent is a cradle of all of our civilizations. It's where a lot of cultivation of, of crops first started thousands and thousands of years ago. It's where the first city-states that we can identify started coming into being. It's where the first empires and centralized governments and societies began to, to spring up. And at opposite ends of this fertile crescent, on one end was uh, Babylon, uh, down here by the, Gulf of, uh, by the uh, Gulf of Persia. And at the top was a country called Assyria, which was also very powerful. And at the bottom here again was Egypt. And you had these three extremely powerful nations. And in the middle between Assyria and Egypt was this tiny little narrow stretch of land on which Israel lived. And they were like the rope in a tug of war between giants, basically. They were the land on which they, these other nations would ride through to wage war against each other. They were, the, they were always trying to capture this small country and use it as a buffer against the attacks of the other larger countries. And so you can imagine what it was like to live in this small country you were always getting trampled over by foreign armies. You were always being uh, colonized by them. You were always a pawn in their political matches with each other. What a terrible place. And it's just kind of like bad luck. Why did God promise them this land? And then it ended up being basically a battlefield between giant empires. Well, that's what happened. And so this, this tug of war, this geopolitical um, check a chessboard, really heated up at the time of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah's prophecies have a lot to do with what should Israel do for itself while these giants are playing tug-of-war with it. And Jeremiah's ministry spans the reign of five kings of Israel. Josiah, who we consider to be one of the better kings, 
Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. We're not going to make you memorize any of that. But his ministry lasts, and some of those kings, their, their reign was only about three months, and they were puppet kings set up by larger powers. But Jeremiah was always speaking to these kings, always trying to get them to reform the worship of Israel. With Josiah, that had already started taking place. Josiah is considered one of the last great good kings of Judah. Even Josiah didn't go far enough, though, in his reform of worship. His reform of worship was the reform of the outward part of worship. Jeremiah was often telling Josiah, we need to reform the heart of worship. We have to reform our own hearts. Once we do that, then we will worship well. People had the sense that if they were worshiping well externally, that was enough. But Jeremiah was always coming back. The other kings, some of them were completely against God and were completely for the worship of foreign idols. And they thought that, that they would play some of these political, political games with the larger powers. Jeremiah was often telling them, do not mess with these big powers because they are God's judgment on you. And if you mess with them, even more judgment will land on you. That's how King Josiah died. It's really tragic. It was a real loss for Jeremiah. King Josiah decided to go and ride with the Pharaoh of Egypt, or ride against the Pharaoh of Egypt to stop him, to, to try to curry favor with the Assyrians. He died in battle, and the Assyrians took it out on Judah. Some of the others tried making alliances first with Egypt, others with Assyria. Finally, Babylon came into the picture. Uh, Babylon and Egypt converged on Assyria and defeated it at the Battle of Carchemish. Just fascinating story. And these kings would vacillate. They would sometimes try to make alliances with Egypt, sometimes with Assyria, sometimes with Babylon. And you see in the prophetic literature this great distrust, a displeasure that God has with this vacillation. Playing one off the other, you can't do that when you're this small power. Jeremiah's message to Israel or to Judah was, this is God's judgment on us. Don't try to switch horses. Don't try to, don't try to outsmart these guys. We have to stick with this. Eventually the Lord will save us. It was a question of trust. Other prophets were telling the kings, no, make this alliance. Make this alliance. And so there was... Conflict even among the prophets at the royal court. And Jeremiah often found himself as the lone and lonely and sad voice saying, you're going the wrong way. But his words are the ones that we have that are recorded. And he was the one that was speaking God's word into that. All that introduction just to give you a sense that what God is preparing Jeremiah to do is not popular. God is calling Jeremiah to reform the worship of Israel to make it an internal heart worship. God is also calling Jeremiah to speak a word of judgment on his own people and to warn them against getting involved in these geopolitical chess matches. And that's not easy for one single person to do. Uh, there's a whole government arrayed against him. There's a whole host of false prophets that are prophesying against him. So God is asking Jeremiah to do something very difficult, very lonely, very crushing. Let's go to our reading then. Jeremiah 1. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, 
son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Ah, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am only a child. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reaches out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. The Lord said to me, you have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. The word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see a boiling pot tilting away from the north, I answered. The Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I am about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, and in worshiping what their hands have made. Get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them whatever I command you. Do not be terrified by them, or I will terrify you before them. Today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah's, Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. What we read in Jeremiah, if you read the whole book, in a sentence, God wants us to grieve for the world. God wants us to grieve for the world. Jeremiah is sometimes called the weeping prophet. He cries a lot in this book. He cries over Jerusalem. He cries over the idolatry of the world. He cries about how he's being treated by all these people. In his call, God tells him, I've made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, one person against everybody. The kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land, they will all be against you. Talk about lonely. Talk about grievous. I look at that and I think, well, maybe we feel like we have enough grief of our own. God wants me to grieve for the world, but I have enough grief of my own in my own life. I've had all sorts of things happen in the course of my life that make me grieve. Do I now need to grieve for the rest of the world, too? But we find, if we look through the scriptures, that we can't go through life looking only at our own grief. We can't. God calls us out of that, and Jesus models that for us. Last week I mentioned that 
Today, if you'd like to share, if you have a Bible verse that is your verse for the year or is, is, is describing something that's happening in your life right now that is something that you can connect with and attach to, uh, we'd like you to share it today during our sharing time. I want to share mine with you right now, and it's something that's been with me for actually the last several years. And it, I was thinking of changing it this week, but then I went back to it. It's Luke 1941. And it's kind of a sad one, but it goes like this. It's a very short verse. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. That's my verse. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Now that is a little sad because it's about Jesus crying. and Jesus is human, so he does cry. He sheds real tears. He cried when his friend Lazarus died. This isn't so much about, it is about the state of Jerusalem. Jesus looked at Jerusalem and how broken and fallen it was, and he wept over it. So it is about Jerusalem. But for me, it's also about the Savior's heart. Jesus cares so much about others. He cares so much about this place where true worship should happen, and it's not, that he's broken, and he weeps for it. And I love that verse because for me, it means he's weeping over me when I don't worship well. He's weeping over me in my brokenness, and he loves me and he cares for me. This has been a sustaining verse for me in the last few years. Our family's gone through a lot of transition, let me tell you. But I've looked at this verse quite a bit and even printed it out and put it on a piece of paper and stuck it in my office, uh, at at my office in in, um, Santa Cruz when I was working there. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And Jeremiah wept over Jerusalem too. Jeremiah wept over the people of God who were not worshiping as God wanted them, them to. You look at the prophets, Jeremiah, uh, who cries a lot. He's broken by the brokenness around him. But some of the others are like this too. If you look at the life of Isaiah, you find that he goes to extreme measures just to get people's attention. He's so frustrated with God's people because they won't listen to him that for one year he walked around Jerusalem naked just to get people's attention. You didn't really want to meet Isaiah then. You know, it was like, okay. And he named his sons two really uh, uh, provocative names. One's name was Shear Jashub, which means the enemy is going to come and take all your stuff. So you say, oh, nice-looking kid you've got here. What's his name? The enemy's going to come take all your stuff. Oh, well, gosh, Isaiah doesn't waste any time. Skip past all the pleasantries. Isaiah's other son was Maher Shalal Hashbaz, the longest word in the Bible, the longest name in the Bible. It means quick to the spoil and the prey hastens. It's another. It's kind of like his other son's name. The enemy's going to come and take your stuff. Um, Isaiah was a frustrated prophet. Now, if you want to go to the king of, of depressed prophets, just look at the life of Elijah in 2 Kings. Oh, Elijah was like chronically depressed. He could, have, he could have taken some kind of medication for it. He was so lonely. He was so beaten down by his uh, conflict with the king of Israel that he told the Lord, I just want to go off and die. I'm so tired, I, I could die. And he goes someplace and he sits in solitude for 40 days before he has the power even to get up again. And it's not even his own power that gives it to him. It's God's power speaking into him, bringing him food by the birds. You read, a lot, read about Elijah. 
He comes off the highest height. He defeats the prophets of Baal. It should have been like winning the Super Bowl for him. He should have come off that and been like, Woo, USA, or something like that, some other country that he was living in. He went into a deep depression after that encounter with the prophets of Baal because the king was out to get, the king and the queen were out to get his life, and he was broken. He was broken for his people. God wants these prophets to be broken, depressed, provocative for his people, and the same with Jeremiah. Jeremiah weeps and weeps. Jeremiah 13, 17 reads like this. He speaks to the people of, of Judah. If you do not listen, I will weep in secret because of your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly, overflowing with tears, because the Lord's flock will be taken captive. He's prophesying that Assyria, Babylon are going to come down and destroy them. I'd like us to look at our text. Go ahead and look at Jeremiah 1. And I want to bring out this call of Jeremiah. It starts with verse 4. And some of the most beautiful language we have in Scripture here. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you or I chose you. Wow. God knew Jeremiah even before he was born. Just a, just a little... You know, like on the ultrasounds, God's looking in there in the ultrasound and saying, I know you. I choose you. I'm going to set you apart as a prophet to the nations. And um, there's this classic prophetic response to this word from the Lord. You see it in Isaiah as well. Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and you're sending me to a people of unclean lips, and and God touches Isaiah's mouth with this glowing coal and sort of purifies him. Same thing here. Jeremiah says, I don't, I'm only a child. I don't know how to speak. It kind of is reminiscent even of Moses. When Moses gets his prophetic call, he says, I'm not good at talking. God's, God doesn't take these uh, excuses from anyone. He doesn't take an excuse from Moses. He doesn't take one from Isaiah. He doesn't take one from Jeremiah. He says, I'm going to touch your mouth. Um, and I'm going to, um, all you have to do is say what I tell you to say. Really, it's the simplest thing in the world. Jeremiah doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't have to lift a, a, a ton of weight. He doesn't have to build any buildings or anything like that. He doesn't have, all he has to do is talk. All he has to do is say what God tells him to say. And there's power in that. We find in the Old Testament over and over again that God accomplishes incredible things just by his word, including the creation of the universe. It was all just God talking. All you have to do is talk. And so the, the Lord says, I've touched your mouth, I've put my words in your mouth, and I am appointing you over nations and kingdoms to do three things. Beautiful. To uproot and tear down, which sounds destructive, and it is. Can you imagine him taking the foundations of a wall and pulling it up and having the whole thing topple down. To destroy and to overthrow, to level things, to make them fall down, to, to challenge powers in the world. But God doesn't leave it on a negative note, does he? The first, the first four, the first two or the first four, are about destroying an old order, breaking something that needs to be broken because it's, it's idolatrous. But at the end, God says, 
But after that, I want you to build, build anew, and to plant. These two metaphors, one from architecture to build something new, something holy to the Lord, the other from agriculture to plant something so that it grows up and is fertile and is new. So Jeremiah's call is not just a destructive one. It's not just one of calling people to account, but then also to lead them in the way. And all that's needed is God's word to do it. There's some twin prophecies here, then, that we see in the next. In verse 11, we see that God asks Jeremiah, what do you see? He's giving him his first vision, a vision of something. Something appears in Jeremiah's mind, and God wants Jeremiah to respond to it. Jeremiah sees the branch of an almond tree. And the Lord said, okay, you've got your channel set to, you've got your TV tuned to the right channel because that's exactly what I wanted you to see. It's almost like God is making sure that the signals are coming through. You have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. You may have a text note that that says the Hebrew word for watching sounds like the Hebrew word for almond tree, and that's correct. The word for almond branch is saked, and the verb that you would use for the Lord is watching is soked. The Lord loves word plays. He loves little sort of word puzzles. He's saying, that almond tree is a reminder to you that I am watching to see that my word, that thing by which I get things done, is fulfilled. So then the Lord says, all right, you got the channel on the right, you got the TV set to the right channel. What do you see now? And he sends another, sends another vision to Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, I see a boiling pot tilting away from the north. And God then interprets this vision to him. He says, the people of the north, the Assyrians, later the Assyrians will uh, be conquered by the Babylonians. They'll occupy that land, so they'll still be the people from the north. The people from the north are going to be summoned against Judah because of their idolatry. It's like a boiling pot is going to be pouring out from the north down on top of them, and it's going to destroy them. And it, all sorts of awful things. The king is going to come, the king of the foreign land is going to come and set up throne at the gates of Jerusalem. They'll come against her walls, against all the towns of Judah. Eventually, Jeremiah prophesies even that the temple will be destroyed. And that really makes people mad because they think the temple is where the Lord lives. How could it possibly be destroyed? It's got some sort of magic presence in it. It can never fall. But it does. It does. The temple, that holy precinct, is still no protection against God's wrath towards his people. And God is mad. I'm pronouncing judgment on my people. They forsake me. They're burning incense to other gods, worshiping what their hands have made. In other parts of Jeremiah, you get more explicit stories about what the people were doing. They were burning their own children. Burning their own children in sacrifice, hoping it would give them favor with these false gods. They were worshiping false gods and all the wickedness that came with that. It's terrible. Well, all this prophecy comes true. There were several phases of invasions. Uh, We know that King Josiah tried to go and stop, um, tried to stop Pharaoh Necho and died in battle. Uh, We know that several wars took place. Eventually, um, the Assyrians were victorious over that, for that moment of time in the life of the, of, uh, the Middle East, the Fertile Crescent. And in about 597 B.C., 
all of the Jerusalem mostly fell and all of the aristocrats, all the really wealthy, important people were taken away. They were marched away. And without their leaders, uh, Israel or uh, Jerusalem limped along for about 10 years with the puppet rulers that I mentioned before set up. But even then they conspired against the Assyrians. And so finally in 587 BC, the Assyrians came in full force and they did everything that God said was going to happen. They pulled down the walls of Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. Everyone who was left, everyone who was left, was marched away hundreds of miles. And of course, you can imagine many of them just died on the way because you can't march hundreds of miles. I can't imagine marching with the, just with our, us with a family of four, you know, and you got a, a one-year-old baby. How are you going to march hundreds of miles with that little baby? How are you going to feed your family while you're marching into exile? So even the march into exile was really like a genocide. It destroyed them. Uh, only a remnant survived and took up residence in Babylon. And it was there that they had to wait for 70 years until the Lord called them home. It was tough times, tough times for Judah. Jeremiah himself was whisked away by his friends to Egypt at the last moment. He avoided being captured and exiled. And it was from there that he was able to finish all this writing. Um, and he felt badly about that. He thought he needed to go with them to continue to, to prophesy to these people. But others did that for them. Isaiah did it for them. Ezekiel was one of the prophets who was with the exiles in Babylon, and he spoke God's word into the exile's life there. So Jeremiah didn't have to go to Babylon. Ezekiel went. Others went and were able to do that. I want to draw your attention to a few things in our passage that I think are beautiful. Uh, verse 8, and again at the end, um, do not fear, for I am with you and I will rescue you, says the Lord. You're up against a lot. There's a lot of geopolitical stuff going on now. I'm pushing, putting you into the middle, to the crucible, so you can speak my truth to the kings of Judah. They're going to hate you for it. In fact, at one point, Jeremiah was thrown in a, in a well and left for dead. Uh, one of his friends pulled him out at the last minute before he died. I mean, he was thrown in prison at various times and then let out. God said, you know, these people, they're all against you, but I am with you. I will rescue you. Another prophecy that came true. He made it to Egypt at the very end. Um, there's there's going to be some tough times. So, you perhaps are saying... Well, that was just a beautiful history lesson. I, now I know everything about Jeremiah, Babylon, Assyria, and Egypt from 628 B.C. till 587 B.C. Does it have anything to do with what we're talking about today here in Los Altos in 2013? And the answer is, of course it does. It's Scripture. Scripture always has a word for us. Um, and I think there's two choices here. Who, where are we in this story? Are we like Jeremiah? Is God calling us as a prophetic voice to our world? Well, the answer is yes, of course, absolutely. Or do we also maybe find ourselves in the story as all those who are against Jeremiah and God's prophetic word? Is there something inside of us that needs to be reformed and warned about God? And the answer to that is yes, too. And, and so if you will let me, I'd like to have my cake and eat it, too. I think this is a word for us. 
that we need to be tra- uh, reformed and transformed by God's word. God is calling us to true worship, just like Jeremiah was calling the people of Judah to true worship. And Jeremiah would say things to them like, you know, it's not enough to sit in the temple. And the people in the temple would say things like this. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You can't come in here with your prophecies because God's protecting this place. And Jeremiah said, no, even this place will fall. And even in this place that you think is holy because you're doing all these rituals, you can still do profane things in it, even though you have this external veneer of religious expression. It can happen in the temple of the Lord. A holy place can be used to mask all sorts of evil. You can use pious words to tell a lie. You can do all sorts of things like that. The Lord will tear things down, but he'll also build them up again. He's going to tear us down if we let him. And that's what I want maybe this word to speak into our hearts today. And ask this. Can God's word still work the way it did for Jeremiah? Can it work in our hearts and break things that need to be broken? Maybe you could take a moment now to think. Is there something inside of me that just needs to break? That needs to shatter into pieces because it's false? Because it's not honoring to God? God's word can work in our hearts and break things that need to be broken. God's word can come and work in our hearts and divorce us from our idols with which we do all sorts of profane things. God's word can work in our hearts so that it will then come and find the ruins that are there and the broken pieces and put them together into something that we can use to truly worship God. And God's word will come and plant something new inside us, which is old. God can work. God can work in our hearts. And that's half of it. We ask God to break us and to build us again, to use his word to do it. But the other half is, this call to Jeremiah to be against the world, as it were, is the call that every Christian receives as well. It's a very difficult call. Remember what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, if anyone would want to come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. It's not easy. There will be people who are against you. And the call also is to be broken for the things that God is grieving for, to grieve for the world like Jesus grieves for Jerusalem. If we can stop looking at our own grief long enough to look outside those doors, look out the window of your house, look out the window of your car as you're driving down the street, and open yourself to the brokenness of this world, God wants you to feel something about that. He wants you to experience it. He wants you to empathize with it as much as you can. Because that's how he's going to transform the world, is through you responding to that brokenness you see with the tearing down and the building up, the destroying and the planting that God wants to do in the world. The call is for us as well. We can, and we can be 
I said I want us, God wants us to be depressed for the world, and he does. But I don't think he wants us to stay there all the time. So I'm not, uh, I'm not asking you to go around being depressed all the time. But be depressed about the state of the world. But then remember that God doesn't want to leave you there. He wants to redeem the world through his church. You know, we have enough. We have enough to do what he wants. I think this sounds like a big task. How can I grieve for the entire world? How can I bring God's destroying and building word to this whole world? And the answer is, I can't by my own power. This is more than I can do. But also, all I have to do is let God touch my mouth and let his words come out of my mouth, and God will take care of the rest. We have more than enough that we need to go and do this. God gives it to us. This is a daunting call. We need to confront our own idols and the world's idols. That's our call. You know, and people are going to get in the way of that. People are going to say, stop. We don't want you talking like that. They might even use pious words to do it. They might even say, you can't talk like that in the church. This is the temple of the Lord. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of them. Because the Lord says, I am with you, and I will rescue you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, for your call to Jeremiah, the difficult call. Call to a life of brokenness and sadness for your people. Lord, call us to this morning, a difficult call, a call of brokenness for your people in this world. Amen.